Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. As we wrap up another great year of in-depth chats and fascinating conversations, we're taking a look back at some of our highlights of the year and asking the people who make our podcasts happen to pick their favourites. Today we're talking to associate producer Leila Ishmael and senior producer Tom Hall. Leila is kind of a linchpin, keeping a ton of different areas across Intelligence Squared working well together. She's creating new recordings full of great content and she's also producing events too. Tom is the person overseeing and editing our main podcast. There's not an episode that gets out that doesn't have Tom's ears across it, including the one you're listening to today. Let's hear from them both now. Leila, we end up working on things together quite often, don't we? Because along with Connor and Hannah, you've been bringing together event recordings across 2023. And uh, it's those recordings that I'm often turning into a podcast myself. So what's been your highlight listen of the year? I'm going to go for David Baddiel on why he's a reluctant atheist. Okay, so yeah, David Baddiel is, of course, the comedian turned writer. He joined us for our event at the Tabernacle back in April 2023, along with Ben Quash, who is Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London, and Richard Ayoade, who is the well-known comedian, actor, writer, director, polymath, all of those interesting things. They were on stage to discuss the themes of David's book, which is The God Desire, which is sort of a reflection on the role that religion plays in our lives. Essentially, that event was asking, is there a God? Why have you picked it? Um, I thought it was really interesting because lots of atheists traditionally talk about how implausible it is to believe in a God. But David Baddiel is doing something different. He delves into the psychology of belief and asks why human beings are compelled to invent God in the first place, which I think is a really interesting starting point. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's maybe a slightly more nuanced starting point rather than the just is there, isn't there conversation. Because like, I think a, a lot of people put their faith in things. Like if someone is just utterly committed to getting up at 5am and having cold showers and going for grueling jogs and stuff, they're committed to something, right? It's, it's like, it might not be a religion, but it's like they're seeking some other cause that's like outside themselves. Yeah, precisely. I think one of the biggest takeaways from the conversation is that we all have that thing that keeps us going. And even if for David Baddiel, there might not be God, he also has something that keeps him going. And, and throughout the conversation, it becomes apparent what that thing is. Okay, well, with no further ado, let's hear from the event itself. This is David Baddiel, the scholar of religion Ben Quash, and host Richard Ayoade on stage at the Tabernacle Theatre back in April 2023. Why am I sandwiched between such eminence? Well, David asked me, so I must thank you, David. And also I must thank my wife, Lydia, um, because uh, she was taught by Ben... Uh, first as an undergraduate and recently doing masters, and she suggested when Ben, uh, when when David kindly asked me to do this, that I ought to uh, immediately ask someone far more intelligent and distinguished uh, than me to make up for my shortcomings. So, thank you both uh, for being here, and I can only apologise in advance. So, the first thing I'd like to ask David is, why did you write this book? 
what it is, what is it roughly about? Okay. Uh, well, I might read a bit from it to explain what it's about. Uh, why I wrote it is uh, I wrote a book, as you mentioned, called Jews Don't Count, which I was asked to write by the Times Literary Supplement. Uh, I wasn't specifically asked to write that book. I was asked to write an essay book. They had this idea, which is quite a good idea, I think, to try and revive a literary tradition, which is sort of uh, Orwell used to write books that were quite short, that were probably polemical, that had an element of pamphlet to them. Uh, and so he would take a particular thought that he had had on language and politics, whatever it might be, and he would write, I, I don't know, he would write like 100 pages or 80 pages about it. And uh, they wanted to revive that tradition. And they said, you could write about whatever you like. So I wrote about how, in my opinion, Jews are kind of downgraded in the identity politics conversation. And then that book did all right. And they asked me to write another one. Uh, and I think what they really wanted was a sequel. They wanted me to write Jews Still Don't Count. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't really want to do that, because I thought, well, I'll do that when my career is going worse. Uh, and so I thought, what else, what else am I sort of deeply engaged with? What else do I give quite a lot of thought to? And it was, for me, it was atheism, but my particular type of atheism, which in a way follows on from Jews Don't Count, because in Jews Don't Count, obviously, I talk a bit about, I talk a lot about being Jewish, but I also talk about something very specific in that. There's a moment in that which turned out to be uh, what I thought would be obvious, but is not. Uh, I thought it would be on the, on the nursery slopes of that conversation, which is that anti-Semitism is racism. And uh, the way I illustrate that anti-Semitism is racism and not religious intolerance is by saying I'm an atheist, but that would get me no free passes out of Auschwitz. And that turned out to be something of a breakthrough for a lot of people who hadn't understood that about anti-Semitism. And then I thought, well, I could probably follow on about what it means to be a, a Jewish atheist and to do that I need to outline why I'm an atheist and the book does that and yeah. perhaps I should now read a yeah, bit to, to good. give yeah. a sense of it. Um, so this is quite early on in the book. I, actually to explain this bit I'll just read out the two epigraphs at the start. Uh, which I chose very late on uh, in the book, when I thought, oh, it should probably have some epigraphs. Uh, before the divine kingdom can be established in events, it has to be established in the mind, in the human imagination. Bishop, Bishop Richard Harris thought for the day, BBC Radio 4, 4th of November 2022. And we cherish the illusion that exalts us more than a host of baser truths by Alexander Pushkin. Uh, and then in the, on page five, I say, when you write a book, you spend a fair bit of time thinking about the epigraph. In truth, it's probably procrastination. Writing a book is hard, whereas decorating a book, choosing a cover, blurbs, epigrams, is not, comparatively. I chose two quotes, which you may have just read. I like those two. They are, I think, apposite. But the one I really wanted to use was this. A close friend once said to me, but don't you want to believe in God? I said yes, desperately. That's why I know he doesn't exist. It's the opening sentence of The Belief System, a book by an atheist thinker, Virginia Brooke. But Virginia Brooke is a character of my own devising who appears in my own play, God's Dice. And using one of my own quotes as an epigraph is just too naff. I thought I might be able to get away with it on the basis that this book is about the non-existence of something. So perhaps it would be apt to begin with a quote from a book that doesn't exist. I thought that might be meta and clever enough to carry it through. But in the end, it's just too Alan Partridge a move. <laughs> Nonetheless, the quote does sit at the center of this polemic. 
Most arguments for atheism are philosophical. Sometimes they tie themselves in knots, grappling with the issue of how you can prove the non-existence of something. At heart, they are based on the idea that there is no evidence for God's existence, therefore he doesn't exist. My argument, on the other hand, is in a general sense, psychological. It requires an admission, which, is, which frankly most atheists, I've noticed, aren't prepared to make, which is, I love God. The idea, that is, of him. For the purpose of this polemic, I'm going to stick with the patriarchal traditional pronoun, although I believe a modern God would almost definitely have a Twitter bio that ended they stroke them. <laughs> who would not love a superhero dad who chases off death? Some non-believers reading this will think, speak for yourself. It's common amongst atheists in trashing religion also to trash the rewards of religion. Or to be more specific, to disavow the presence in themselves of what religion is there to serve. There is something a little macho in atheism. Some atheists divine, correctly, that what religion provides for human beings is comfort. And then, in a way that can feel a bit adolescent, they feel impelled to say, essentially, comfort, that's for babies. But humans, a subset of which includes all atheists, are babies. However old and intellectual and cynical they grow, no matter how adult and controlled we seem on the surface, underneath we are a hive of wailing, impulsive, immediate need. I'm happy to admit to my own babyishness. That might be because, or rather why, I am a comedian. Much comedy is just that, stripping away the facade of adulthood. We are all winging adulthood, truly. There is only one adult in the world whose age in his soul lines up with the age he in fact is, and his name is Michael Gove. <laughs> I am flawed and shallow and scared and often desperately in need of comfort, both psychological and physical. I am, however, someone with enough self-awareness to perceive these as urges rather than ideas. My thinking self, in other words, is distinct from my urgent one. Not all the time. I often find myself thinking, I must eat now or I will die, even when it's only 11 in the morning. But I'm conscious, even as I think it, that this isn't a logical way to understand the world or even the phenomenon of feeling peckish. I know, even as I experience desire, that it is desire and that desire provides no frame for reality. The God desire should not have to lead to the God delusion. Yet the desire is real. For me, it is the very intensity of it which alerts me to the fact of fantasy. The need to imagine that there is an exit door, somewhere through which to escape constantly on oncoming death, is one that I can confidently predict exists within the deep recesses of most humans. And the pressure of that desire has always and will always lead to divine projection. People talk a lot about what it means to be human, about what separates us from the animals. Some of that is lyrical, love and empathy and stuff. I personally think it can be pinned down to the fact that we are the only animals who feel shame in defecating. But whether it make, makes us human or not, we are the only animal that from an early age is aware of the inevitability of death. So it is impossible to look at the repetitive creation of legends across every culture and throughout history, which in one way or another outsmart death and promise immortality without concluding that God is a projection of a very fundamental desire within us for it not to be so inevitable.
So that's what it's about. It's about how much I feel the desire that I think, in a mass psychology way, has led to the creation of God as an idea in many different forms. And this desire is served by many different types of God and not just the traditional Judeo-Christian God. And also, it's not just death. It's also about meaning, about storifying life, about providing some kind of order to life, some kind of justice to life. All those things are served by God. And I feel those things. I feel the need for those things as much as anyone else. And the, the feeling of that need is what leads me to my atheism. Okay, good. Now, I'm going to ask for Ben's response um, to the book uh, when you read it and also to the question of desire and what it means to desire God um, in terms of your understanding with regards to uh, David's book. First of all, I want to say thank you to David for writing it. And the, um, the fact that most, most bookshops don't stock any books in theology these days at all, except very specialized ones, um, means that I rejoice that a book that's actually doing theology in lots of ways, in, in the sense that it's raising big questions about the nature of the world, the kind of world we live in, and what it is to live in it well, honestly, and um, and to address questions like love and so on. These are these are this is the sort of terrain of theology, um, and unfortunately, what you normally get in bookshops is a little small, even not even a whole bookshelf sometimes, but a few shelves that just called religion, and religion is not the same as theology. Hmm. Religion is the study of a set of human practices over time, more of a sort of social science type of activity. And theology is about what you're doing. It's about these sorts of profoundly engaging questions. We care, orient the way we live. Um, so thank you for getting theology out in this form um, as a theologian. I'm really grateful. And I also think it's, it's you call it a polemic, but it's actually a very sort of generous and quite vulnerable book. Yeah, it's not really a polemic. It's not a polemic. No. And um, so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it too, and particularly the personal bit. I think I wrote the, polem the word polemic quite early on, and, and then, then forgot to change it. Different. Yeah, forgot to change okay. it. Yeah. 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 yeah, well, that's great. That's difficult. Um, so we're dealing with the first draft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I know it's in a book, but I should have revised I understand. that. Yeah. Um, so I, I do. I really want to also celebrate the fact that it's about something much more interesting than the existence of God, which, as I, you you say in the book, and. And under Bottom, I said elsewhere, in a way, is often a very boring and unproductive question. Yeah. So I hope we won't spend much time on that tonight. I think the, the question of desire and the desire for God is really interesting. Um, and I suppose my first response in reading it was to, to wonder, to, to actually be led to a quite intense form of self-examination about whether... Has no one heard a word I've been saying? Okay. I hope you have. Good. <laughs> Yeah, Should we fine. start again? <laughs> Look, this is fine. The first row heard everything. Yeah. Um, it, it's yeah. just all people online and people beyond the first row yeah. have no idea. Yeah. Now, I think, I, have people heard? Did you hear? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I, I think that was one of the most passive-aggressive mic hands I've ever... <laughs> yeah. it was, it was, it was yeah. And also... He could have just said, speak up. He could have done. And also, if anyone was going to create a technical problem tonight, it would be God. So... Well. <laughs> I just have to accept okay. that's probably going yes. on. Okay, yes. Well, you know, he's a bad roadie. <laughs> yeah. um, well, okay, well, Sorry, let's continue was, uh, on. Let's now, let's now, that on. You're, now that you're the, clearly the lead singer, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's go on. Yeah. About, so I, I, was, I found myself having to ask whether I agreed with you on the, 
on, on the huge importance you give to death as a sort of definitive. It's partly doing the explanatory job of, of, of accounting for why we have the desire. It's because of death that we have this desire. Um, and also, clearly, in your own biography, figures very centrally in, in your relationship with the idea of God. And, um, and I, the reason it's a difficult question to ask is because one can easily be self-deluding about this. But I didn't find death as I don't find death as much of an issue as I think you do. Um, and, and in some ways, I, I, you know, I have a sense that if I can get to the end of my life and not have done anything too terrible, right. I'll feel a certain relief about it. So death, in a way, sort of stands for drawing stumps and, you know, quite apart from questions of the afterlife, you know, I, I hope I, I won't have really cocked it up. Right. Um, and also, uh, I quite like anaesthetics. I've, when The few times I've been in hospital, I quite like that sense of brief oblivion. When do you like it? Uh, both before... When you wake up. When I wake up, yeah. yeah. Okay, good point. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Ah, but, here, but on that, um, Ingmar Bergman um, once had an operation, and this isn't a great story so far, but he had an operation, and he's, he spent his life anguished by a judgmental god, a, a rather severe Lutheran father, and he said the relief of his having consciousness and then it stopping was the most thrilling thing that had happened to him at that point. Just that judgment had gone mm. and that there was no one pointing the finger and that it just stopped. Mm. And he felt that gave him a, a kind of confidence. Yeah, I and mean, I, again, that's a judgment or, a, 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 you know, something he's coming to from the point of view of consciousness. You know, he can only make that sense of like, oh, I he love that. He had a secretary just before he nodded off. And <laughs> she just said, uh, but, but I said, of course, it's from the point of view of consciousness, but it's an experience of, no, of non-consciousness and a comfortable being comfortable with the prospect of non-consciousness mm. in the future as well. Okay, but, well, I should perhaps explain something. So t two things. One is mm. the uh, individual experience you're talking about. The book actually begins with, or just before the bit I read, which is it like, begins by talking about um, how my mum, uh, when I was sort of six or seven years old, and I first understood that we die, and I first got the, that as a realization, which obviously we all come to, I'd sort of tried to talk to her about it because I was frightened. And she said, oh, don't worry, it's like a long sleep from which you never wake up. Now, some people may know this about me, but I'm an insomniac. And I think that's when that kicked in, because uh, I, I like sleeping. I love sleeping. Sleeping's great when I achieve it. But I think my love of sleeping is a lot to do with the knowledge that I'm going to wake up. Uh, and by the way, when I, you know, a few people have said this to me, that, oh, you know, I'm not frightened of death, kind of in the way that you seem to be in the book. And I, I, I totally accept that, so someone said to me the other day that Joan Bakewell uh, had been talking about being 91 and sort of looking forward to death. And in, on an individual basis, I can obviously see that to be the case. What I'm talking about here is a mass psychology, mm. uh, the way that cultures in general will create a legend to outsmart death and to, uh, you know, all sorts of other things that it will do as well. It will explain mm. or, and find ways through all sorts of other things that seem to the culture like this is not how I want things to be or and I don't understand this and I don't like this encroaching darkness or this encroaching earthquake or whatever else it might be so basically it doesn't need to be an individual sense in which I can understand as an individual uh, yeah. Ingmar Bergman or you uh, might think like no I quite like the idea of sort of 
unconsciousness. But I don't believe that that negates the idea that as cultures, we have tried to find ways around death. Many, so many stories are about resurrection. Yeah. And why are they about resurrection? Yeah. Why indeed, uh, at the basis of Christian prayer, you'll have to tell me the exact prayer, but it's like, it's, what is it? It's something in the funeral service about how death will be vanquished. Mm. The vanquishing of death is at the heart of many, many religious ideas. And why should that be? Mm. Yeah. Well, I suppose, um, you, as you say, your book starts with this image of your mother reassuring you, um, well, Wrong. failing to reassure yeah, you yeah. Um, about death. And I suppose in one way, I suppose saying it's not going to be painful or frightening and mm. in some way it's going to yeah. be gentle. So I guess that brings up the question um, of finitude, um, which uh, we were talking about earlier. Um, and to what extent is... Um, would you call it a fear in uh, culture or your fear or uh, your fear, which you see uh, occurring more widely, which is of one's own consciousness ending yeah. of, of life being finite? Yeah. How much of that plays into your desire for God as something that stops your own finitude? Oh, I think that, that for me, that's key. And it's, I mean, I, I mentioned in the book something that atheists say. Uh, I think I'd quote Bertrand Russell, uh, and Dawkins has said the same thing. Uh, Bertrand Russell said quite famously that he would scorn mm. uh, to the idea of shivering at his own oblivion. Yeah. I, he's scornful about the idea that you should be frightened of oblivion. Uh, now, there's two things going on there. Number one is, again, this atheist machismo. Uh, it's like, you know, oh, you know, all these fairy tales that people need to make up in order to comfort themselves from the ideas of whatever they're frightened of, principally death, but all sorts of things they're frightened of. I, the great atheist, need have no need of this. I don't mm -hmm. believe that. Yeah. I think that's a pose that a lot of atheists take in order to feel kind of grown up and proper and big. Uh, but there's uh, something else going on there, which is, I think Dawkins has said a similar thing, but not quite in not quite as lofty a way as Russell, which is that why should you be frightened of death? Because you won't know you're dead. And that seems very logical, but it's deeply, for me, inhuman, because you're only saying that from the point of view of life. And from the point of view of life, I promise you, life seems a lot fucking better. It really does. Like, I, I, like it, I, you know, some people in here might think, well, I, I find life so difficult or whatever that I find the idea of nothingness sort of more attractive. But I think that's unlikely. I think that one of the things about the book is it's... I mean, I was born in Ipswich, so... <laughs> well, we, we I lived in... We have I to relativise this. I, I, when my mum was talking to me, I was living in Dollis Hill in 1973. So I can tell you that, yes. as I say in the book, was a kind of death. But I, I think the book is powered, and I quote John Updike quite a lot in the book. John Updike, yes. who is my favourite writer and who was a Christian and deeply believed in God. But I think what I share with Updike... Uh, Updike had an almost hysterical, but beautifully written, attachment to life. Like he was so, like he, a late book by Updike is called Terrorist. It's like a lot of Updike books, it's not that good. But what it's about, it's about a, um, a suicide bomber. And you might ask, why is John Updike writing about a suicide bomber? I think it's because he got old and he thought, I need to write about someone who is in love in the way that I am with life, with death. I need to somehow manage the idea of death and create the love that I feel for life throughout death. He calls uh, life this complex interval of light, which I think is so beautiful. And I think that 
that's, you know, the book, if, if it has a, a sort of positive energy, because uh, it might sound a bit deathy the way that we're talking about it, but the positive energy is, a, is that. It's a deep commitment and love of whatever life may hold, even though life holds lots of shit things. Mm. It's still, for me, better than oblivion. Mm. And I think that exists deeply in all of us, even if we might buy into a, what I think is a slightly religious thing of, well, there's a sort of serenity infinitude. David Baddiel, Ben Quash, and Richard Ayoade there. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Okay, Tom, what are you going to go for? There was so much to choose from across 2023 and we did incredibly serious things, incredibly informative things, but we also did some fun things and I'm going to pick one of those and it's Versus, which is our series settling little debates that are a big deal to someone. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, basically we all have those little debates, don't we, that are sort of never ending between our friends, between our families, like dogs versus cats, Pepsi versus Coca-Cola, Mackey's versus KFC, Man United versus Liverpool, whatever it is. Uh, they really should probably just stay in the pub. But for some reason, we had a bit of fun bringing them to life for a podcast, which uh, we turned into a series earlier this year, hosted by the brilliant Coco Khan. So I'm going to go with our versus debate, Succession versus The White Lotus, uh, two TV behemoths. We had comedian Anya Magliano repping Succession and Poppy Damon, who's a journalist, crime podcaster and screenwriter, talking up The White Lotus I can explain more, but actually Coco did a great job of that every single episode with her sort of fill-in for those at the back, her Coco's Crunch segment. So I'm going to hand over to Coco now. I want to crunch some facts. It's time again for another helping of the snack that educates as well as satiates. It's fill your boots time. It's Coco's Crunch. 
Succession, the drama that focuses on media mogul Logan Roy and his power-hungry, yet strangely inept children set to inherit his global media empire. It first hit our screens in 2018, and the show has become cultural shorthand for many of the debates that define our times, ranging from the power of the mega-rich to Nepo babies. Succession borrows some of its comedy DNA from a real thoroughbred, Peep Show. Succession creator Jesse Armstrong wrote for both, but fans nonetheless had to say goodbye to the Roys and Succession in early 2023 after four fabulously successful seasons. The White Lotus first appeared in 2021. It follows a rotating cast of interwoven players all bound by their arrival at the White Lotus hotel chain. Season one took us to Hawaii. Season two finds us in Sicily. Dead bodies, how they got there, frames both tales. Another recurring arc across both seasons is Jennifer Coolidge, who as one of the few characters to be retained across both seasons has become a fan favorite. In a TV show set across beach resorts where the sun is always shining, the White Lotus manages to shine a light on the darker parts of our obsession with the good life too. Coco's Crunch. So, Anya Meliano, you're repping succession. Why are the Roys your favorite family that aren't your own? The Roys are my favorite family. Obviously not because I would ever want to be involved in any of their mess but mainly just because I do feel like they're a family and I do feel like they're a family that I know and I feel like they're a family whose gossip I'm hooked on and I'm being fed secondhand and that's obviously the dream with any TV show. I just want it to make me feel like I'm getting all the gossip secondhand and I guess what I'm actually saying by that is that I feel like they're really real people and over the four series, every single character has been on such a journey And the journeys have been like Shakespearean in their scope and they've been so realistic that I think about them all like real people. Like on on the day after the last episode, I went to sleep thinking about it and I woke up thinking about it. And I was like, this is so mad because they're (laughs) fictional. You've sort of painted a really vivid picture there of a TV show that stays with you. Yeah. Um, Poppy, let's bring you in here. I know that you're actually a fan of Succession, but you have put the White Lotus on the top spot. So what is it about a hotel chain that should be everyone's first rather than their last resort? Well, look, as as you said, I, I just need to caveat this by saying, you know, both are about privilege and exploitation. Both have been described as kind of white wealth satires and both are utterly hilarious. But I do think White Lotus has the edge and partly that's because I think you get a chance to see not just a family that's filthy rich that we kind of don't have access to and in a way preaching to the converted as a liberal audience we, we kind of want to hate that type of family already but I think White Lotus forces you to be more introspective it re- reflects more classes you saw you see the people who work at the hotel who you kind of completely fall in love with you see the middle class families um, who though privileged are kind of you know often are trying to check themselves in this very kind of cringy way and I think that that introspection I think is really clever to squeeze into quite a broad show that appeals to a mass audience um, and that's why I really like it and similar to what you're saying I think Yes, I love watching the Roys kind of outwit each other. But I think there's so many characters in White Lotus to fall in love with as well that you end up thinking, um, God, I've been at a dinner party or I've hung out with friends and they've sort of been on that line of saying the wrong thing, of maybe not not really realising their own privilege. And that's what makes it sort of so compelling to watch. Mm, interesting. It's uh, The thing that stood out to me in what you were saying there was about the wide range of characters. It's not just only focused on these kind of white, wealthy stories. Do you feel that maybe the minor characters in Succession deserve more praise? I wouldn't go Tom and Greg. I feel like they're main oh, characters. Oh, no, they're definitely, they're definitely <laughs> not main characters anymore. It's got to be Marsha. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Marsha. Okay, Marsha's one. 
Um, is Willa one? Yes, Willa is mm. one, and Willa is one of the best characters. She's so, she's so good. But yeah, I, I I also want to caveat by saying I love the White Lotus, and God, this debate is you know is tearing me up to, to have to have this debate in the first place. <laughs> it's Sophie's choice. I know exactly. Like <laughs> this is this is very hard for me, and I do think that I see that the White Lotus has like a slightly broader scope of characters, but. I think like in terms of like the hotel staff and, and stuff, I guess you kind of see like one or two members of staff. But I think in succession, successions, maybe like the way that they do that is that they have like all the different characters trying to climb up the ranks. And it's definitely not like a broad chunk of society. And like in one of the last episodes, I think maybe the last episode we find out that cousin Greg, who is presumably towards the bottom of the ladder, is still being played like... 200 grand a year yeah <laughs> so that's sort of that's the uh, the lower end of the scale but I think about the end of maybe season two I think it was where we see Shiv like convince a woman to not sort of speak out about what's happened to her um and I think the way we see the like main characters the like top of the pecking order characters interact with some of those lower characters shows like an awareness about what they're doing that's like quite unique and evil like I think there are those moments where Kendall is like oh I'm saying something stupid like I'm trying to rap because I'm cringe but like there's another element to it which isn't all just about cringe it's about like being quite ruthless because of what they want. But I think the thing is, the issue with succession is you don't really see the consequences of their actions. Even when they manage to force an election's hand, a fascist is in power, you see sort of the textured background of people rioting. But the sort of point is they're completely unaffected. Mm. Whereas I think you see the flinch on the face of the microaggressions in White Lotus, but you also see literally how money moving into somewhere like Hawaii has massively decimated the local communities and what that means for them through the character of Kai. So I think that's the thing that feels a little bit more able to touch um, and able to reach. There is something else I want to say as a caveat, and I know we hate caveats, but I did used to work uh, at the time. So I was I was part of Murdoch Media, but I just want to say no NDA has forced my hand in taking this side. Um, <laughs> but I, I definitely think if you've worked in any kind of uh, media organization associated with the Murdochs, it's super interesting um, seeing how that sort of truth has come into to life um yeah that just wanted to say that <laughs> yeah no people do say that succession's portrayal of the ultra wealthy is spot on could we say the same thing about the characters in the white lotus I think so, because as I say, I think it's quite clever. I mean, you have Tanya's character, who's a kind of heiress. She's completely out of touch. She's, you know, she is the kind of private jet class. But you also have a middle class family. This is their big family holiday. You know, they're, they're still very wealthy and still in the 1%. But you also have a struggling journalist who's married into wealth um, played out. And I, I mean... I don't know if I interact with those people that often, but I think the things that they pick up on, the little ways in which they think about things and their values is quite well done. Um, I often think it's similar to um, the kind of like guess who's coming to dinner framing, which is obviously a movie in which a liberal family uh, during the civil rights movement, Sydney Poitier comes to dinner and uh, they say, oh, we're all for civil rights, but we don't want you to be with a black person, but just not our family. And I think that's what White Lotus touches on quite well. I think all the characters think they're kind of good guys. They don't just simply have the villainous wealthy boyfriend, for example, a husband who's just a jerk. There's moments where you sort of feel sorry for him. His entitlement isn't completely unlimited. We'll be back after this. 
bring you in here, Anya, because something that comes up a lot when people talk about succession is likability. And so you have one strand of fan that is like, oh, they're all detestable, but that's real life. And in a way, that's what you like. And then you have other people that say, actually, you do kind of like them, even though they're problematic. And that's really difficult. I wonder if likability is a value that even matters in writing. And also, how do you feel about the likability of the characters? Yeah, so 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 my my parents, my mum and my stepdad are, are the sort of people who who watch Succession and go, God, they're all so mean, and and I watch it and I go, God, they're all so funny. <laughs> um, so so I don't think it, it bothers me too much, and I find maybe as someone who's uh, a in therapy and. B had a childhood. I like that we see those moments of like, oh, this all comes back to their childhood and their relationship with their dad. And it's and it's such a sort of clear, like psychoanalytical journey that they've all been on that I think really comes to a head in this most recent season. I don't know if that contributes to their likability as much as it does just being able to understand them more as characters, not in a way where you go, oh, that means every decision you've made is perfect, but... I think I, I definitely agree that in the White Lotus, like snapshots of what you see, you understand those are like people who exist in the world and it feels really real. And I think a lot of the humor in White Lotus comes from how accurate a satire it is of people like when they talk about watching Ted Lasso. And that's and that's the thing they agree on is like their middle ground of TV show. Um, you see that snapshot and that snapshot feels like very real as a snapshot of a sort of way people talk but I think for me succession was like a snapshot of the way people are in a kind of more fundamental sense I think it's a really good question and when I'm writing stuff myself I always worry about this because you're always like do I need the they in script writing they call like the save the cat moment like do you need your character to do something actually good if they're just a jerk all the time you know is anyone gonna get in a care um and I have to say for me succession a little bit suffers from that just in the sense that ultimately like the it's it's them wrangling for the hot spot and they're shitty to each other and at different stages you think one person's shittier than the other but that's what's quite hard to feel like the there's a kind of engine that drives it through I'm, I'm like oh no it's going to be this person I'm like actually if it's Shiv or Kendall it's they're kind of interchangeable and that's sort of the point which makes it super clever but I find in White Lotus there were more characters with like heartbreaking moments that I really felt in my guts where I really do go oh gosh I'm so sorry that that happened and I've been that person and that where I, whereas you're right I think we understand the psychological reasons that the Roy children are so disturbed but it doesn't necessarily make me feel like my heart break for them maybe a few moments when um uh Roman you realize the kind of level of abuse he suffered I definitely feel that in my guts but I would say I feel it more in White Lotus one thing I would love to ask you is do you think sometimes succession is quite hard to follow oh and God, I yeah. And, you know, like sometimes the the pleasure in it is just that amazing Jesse Armstrong dialogue. But you do have to let the details wash over because otherwise you have to like, you're like, wait, so this is the 476 deal going, you know, is that how you watch it? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm I'm one of the stupidest <laughs> people who watch Succession. Like I find it so hard to follow. And me and my friend do a podcast about it, which sort of prided itself on focusing on like being Succession for people who don't sort of understand <laughs> Succession. And, I may say some people did not like that about that <laughs> podcast. They wanted higher, they wanted higher brow stuff and we were not prepared to give it to them. Um, I, I also used to watch it when I lived with one of my flatmates. He basically was able to get the business side of things much quicker than me. Mm. And so we'd watch an episode and then at the end I'd turn to him and he'd be like, 
God, I can't believe they're making that deal. And I'd be like, yeah, what, 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 what deal? <laughs> what deal was that? And plots of the, of the business side of things would just go over my head. But in this debate, I will chalk that up as, look, it's just another reason to rewatch it, <laughs> to understand the nuance of the, the business side of things. So actually, yeah, rewatching. Have you both rewatched the respective seasons? What was it like on the second go? I've rewatched Succession apart from the most recent season and I've rewatched White Lotus season two. And I think both of them brought more to the surface with the rewatching. Like they're, they're really rewatchable mm. in, especially in like the terms of when there's sort of a, tw- a twist or, 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 or everything comes to a head and then you can watch them lay the bones down in the previous episode to get you to that place. I don't think lay the bones down is a phrase, but <laughs> I hope that's okay. <laughs> I got it. Yeah, I'm going to take that on, lay the bones down. But I think um, I've also rewatched, and I think with Succession, it helps you just literally understand what the hell is going on. I definitely think, for example, season one, it's quite a tuning in to a particular energy and to, and to sort of what the characters are doing and it's now you know the ending it's fun to revisit and see like how that's planted early on and like what misdirections there are and similar with white lotus i think you're very focused on working out who might have been killed and in a second viewing you get to really just relish in those characters and little throwaway lines actually mike white had moments of improv in white lotus so one line that kind of went viral was tanya's going on a motorbike she's this heiress and um, she's dressed up all in pink and the hotel worker is taking a photograph and she says, who do I look like? And she says, Peppa Pig. <laughs> and this, like, apparently the crew just completely lost it and, like, could not stop laughing. And there's this great moment with the actress is interviewed and she's like, oh, my God, did that make it in? That was just a total silly line. Um, and I, I, I kind of think that knowing that and going back through, you kind of really appreciate some of the dialogue and its naturalism in those moments. Um, I did also, that reminded me that, I think both are amazingly memeable and it's been really interesting as two shows that kind of know how to harness the internet and mm. almost a script writing for the internet. Because like re-watching both of them, there's just bits you're like, oh my God, that's like a gif that I want to use. Like, I don't know how to do that, but I want someone to make that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so many of my friends who are queer change their profile pictures to these are some high-end gays. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so many of them. It was really good. Obviously, No Context Succession is one of the best Instagram feeds uh, around. Yeah, <laughs> just iconic. Um, what show's funnier? I personally think White Lotus has more diverse types of comedy. I think there are moments of like cringe oh my god they've walked in on someone having sex this is like and then they're really shocked it's got those sort of i can't believe they just said that it's got those sort of throwaway improv lines well succession is he is clearly a genius and he writes that very like i'm gonna fuck you up put your eyeballs up your ass or whatever but is it's it's kind of one note a little bit if we're playing the game because i love it but it's a little bit the same well i would say um (laughs) that I think that's true of the kind of characters like Shiv and Roman. I think their humour is quite like that. But I think you get the laughing at Kendall, which also very quickly for me turns into crying because I find it oh, so hard to watch. Do you mean watch. the birthday scene? Um, I mean yeah. the birthday scene. And just any time he's like trying to do anything <laughs> to raise his status. But I think the funniest scenes are Greg and Tom and I think they are like a a all-time classic comedy duo and speaking of like improvising lines I got sent from God a TikTok about succession um which was like a clip of 
a scene and then a, a sort of rolling look at the script and you could see which lines were improvised and mm. Greg improvised some like really funny lines. It's the scene where they're on a cruise ship and they're deci- on, on a yacht and they're deciding who to throw under the bus for the cruise ship fiasco and Roman suggests throwing Greg under the bus and he just goes, well... You're not a very nice man. And you can just see that's not in the script. <laughs> that's so funny. It's, it's great. <laughs> I know what you mean. And I, look, Greg and Tom, you're right. They give that almost like light relief at time as this kind of odd couple. But mm. I still think Tom is quite often, um, he's almost using the language of those guys and he beca- he uses that on Greg. So it's this really like abusive tone that makes for me a little bit less bingeable because I'm sort of like, I need mm. to have it in its pot portioned out morsels because I'm like, it's kind of an assault on the eyes and ears which is great but it's it's I'm not like belly laughing as much I'm more like that is witty and what's the worst thing about White Lotus like what is what did it fail miserably at White Lotus like didn't make me cry it didn't make me feel like strong sad emotions and it even though a character dies which is like obviously a huge plot point even when there's that amazing scene where she died I was like this is I was like jaw open but I was not crying and I was not my heart was not like squeezed Mm. um after Logan dies I wept through that whole episode I was like shaken for the whole week and for the following episode and the funeral and what made you cry a horrible evil mogul died what was sad about it I guess it was it's the it's the children's reaction and it was the way they did it and that's the point. I cried <laughs> at an evil person dying. That's how well written it was. Whereas I didn't cry at Tanya, who's a likable character dying. But I don't think you're meant to cry at Tanya dying because that is a like, even, you know, that even in the moment she like couldn't really get herself off the boat because she's so used to this life of privilege. I think the moments that I felt really emotional was seeing the way that Belinda is treated by Tanya and that her dreams are dashed just in a whim when Tanya doesn't feel like actually fulfilling on the goods of fulfilling the business or moments when you realize that Kai has gone to jail and that these girls, it's just been a holiday fling and off they go back to America. Those moments really left me quite like devastated for that sort of real life injustice that happens all the time. Whereas I didn't feel, I sort of was like waiting for Logan to die because it was the whole, you know, the whole thing. So Mm. But I feel like those most of those moments that you spoke about like are in season one. Do you think season two had any of those moments? Because for me, I felt like the kind of subplots of Tanya's assistant and that Portia. Like, they weren't quite... Mm, mm-hmm. Portia, yes, yeah. I, it didn't feel like any of those went to the same lengths as in season one. I'll tell you the one that did choke me up is the hotelier... Oh, I should know her name, but she the queer love story that she was kind of unrequited. And then the moment where you just see her like well up and realize that he, she's engaged to someone else. And that's why she is the way she is. I think maybe anyone who has a, has a swap spot for unrequited queer love stories like me, who has been there. That was a bit like, Oh, that, that really hit. I agree though. I think there was probably more emotional moments in season one, but I think for me, as I say, overall, it's for me, it's succession really never hits those sad lows. It's, it's more like a, it's an intellectual experience, not a heart experience. Well, not even not even Roman when he's like, "Oh, is Dad in there? Can we get him out?" Like that that was that was that was painful. Am I going to sound really horrible? I was like, "Yeah, obviously that's really awful." But you've seen Roman be so cruel to people that actually it was more like a pitying thing. I was just like this guy who's just unable to to deliver this thing after 
being such a hotshot, being so rude to everyone, I felt pity more than tragedy. I kind of alluded to this before, but I do worry sometimes with the succession that these are figures we already think are bad people, like the kind of big media families that exist and uh, have a have way too much power in our political landscape and, you know, a huge amount of privilege and what have you. And I wonder if anything, any minds were shifted watching that show. Like, I don't know that I was left that thinking, oh God, yeah, we should really get a handle on, on media control in a way that I hadn't already believed. Whereas I do think I left the White Lotus thinking, you know what, I'm a garden reading card carrying lefty, but I might go on a holiday and not really think very much about what the consequence of my travel is overseas or the consequence of me using my wealth and privilege to jaunt around the world. Interesting, interesting. Um, so something that I was looking at on Twitter after the final episode of Succession was that lots of young people who are on the internet were like, yes, queen, for the chivroy. And I had this moment being like, oh, no, something's gone wrong. The young people who are meant to be, you know, have great ethics and be radical, they're like, yes, queening. And I have heard both theme tunes in a club. Really? They both, both they of them? Both raised the roof. I've played both of them at my birthday parties <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. And, and what, what got people bopping the most, do you think? Well, it's hard to tell because they were different years, <laughs> you know. Anya Magliano, Poppy Damon and Coco Khan there talking about who wins out of Succession versus The White Lotus on the Versus podcast from Intelligence Squared. Of course, there's much more where those came from. Dig into the podcast feed and catch up on any of our great chats you might have missed. We'll be hearing a few more staff picks in the coming episodes too. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. Thanks for listening.